You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of Pyre Books Imprint of Prometheus Books. We're going to talk about space opera. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure. Lou, I'm brought up space opera because I just discovered this wonderful space opera. It's called Icarus at the Edge of Time by Brian Greene, and it's a very different form of space opera. We all like to think of space opera really has to be uh, about a 500-page minimum <laughs> book uh, and with uh, hundreds of characters, usually a dramatis personae at the beginning, and this is a board book for children. <laughs> that is a fascinating idea. Uh, it, what he does is he takes the Icarus myth and spins it into a very realistic and well-thought-out um, science fiction scenario that involves a lot of the classic uh, tropes of that you find in um, space opera. You've got a generation starship. You've got encounters with black holes. You've got time dilation. You, you have the whole thing, but you have it in 34 pages, including the front and back cover. <laughs> so it's a really uh, interesting idea. And, and this made me want to talk to you uh, about, you know, the varieties of space opera. And you mentioned some books that you, you're publishing, the K. Kenyon books, which are space opera, but of a very different kind, aren't they? Well, the K. Kenyon series, The Entire in the Rose, is sort of anti-space space opera. Kay wanted to write a space opera. She wanted to write something big and epic in the Dan Simmons, Larry Niven sense. But she didn't want to deal with fast and light travel and and all the problems and complications of fast and light travel. I don't know if I don't want to put words into Kay's mouth and say that she doesn't believe that FTL is possible, but I know that the, the that the naysaying as to whether or not FTL is possible factored into her decision not to want to deal with it this time. Mm-hmm. And so she came up with the concept of the entire, which is a pocket universe that's been artificially created by weakly godlike aliens, such that there is no empty space in it. It's one enormous landmass that stretches stellar dif- distances. So if you had the time and the ability, you could actually walk a distance from here to Alpha Centauri and be walking across desert the whole time. Um, and this, 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 the universe is, is radial. It's shaped like a starfish with five... Five, uh, five arms around a central hub, and there's a river that flows down all five arms and comes together in a lake called the Sea of Arising in the middle. And the river is not water. It's made out of some strange silver quantum foam material. And navigators are the people who have been gifted with the ability to get in boats on this river and travel faster than light to all the points along, along the, ra- the radial arm. Well, now, this is a fascinating concept, and really, again, I think a really interesting and original take on space opera. Well, let's back up a little bit and talk about um, what exactly do you think are the, the critical elements in the, to have a space opera? Well, I think a sense of epic scale and scope. Yeah, definitely. Perhaps a little bit of swashbuckling. You know, charismatic protagonist on uh, the grand scale. I, I think that it, science fiction that just deals with a single planet isn't space opera. I think you have to have galactic civilizations. You have to have multiple planets. You have to have, um, you know, the, the protagonist who's, who's playing on a, a world's 
plural stage where rather than drill down into the into the culture of a single world you're dealing with 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 the big federations and empires i think that's one of the appeals uh, of space opera in many ways it's kind of like a uh, a made-up travelogue. When you read uh, something like, you know, the, the the Peter F. Hamilton books, either the Night's Dawn trilogy or his Confederation books, there's a real feel as you go from planet to planet. They're all based on, you know, slightly different bits of Earth kind of extracted and, and extrapolated, but you still get to that feel of... Uh, um, going to the wine region of France, for example, in the Confederation books, there's one of the protagonists of that book ends up in a kind of a planet, the planet of wine fields. <laughs> and I think that kind of that travel log uh, feel for, for uh, space opera is, is really important. You know, that makes me think immediately of two things. One is that Douglas Adams is completely and clearly space opera. And two, I'm not sure that Star Trek is. Wow. Now, I can see why Douglas Adams would be, but why would Star Trek not be? You know, I, 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 I'm just feeling my way here because it just hit me, but I, don't, I, I wonder if tonally Star Trek feels like space opera. Well, you know... Is I, the opera part missing from Star Trek? Yeah, and also I, I think, too, that most Star Trek episodes really pretty much take place on one planet. Mm-hmm. There's not a, a kind of a multi-planet arc from one place to another. There are not these kind of, although we have these uh, collisions of two galactic civilizations between the Federation and the Klingons or the Romulans or the Borg, um, there's not often that sense of awe and mystery that goes from traveling to one place to the other. I would say that, I would suggest that maybe some of the episodes of the Approach Borg... space opera, exactly. Uh, the, the Borg stuff comes really pretty close to being like space opera if, if it I think it actually is and it also has some of that uh, majestic sweep whereas uh, um, and, and also it's good to remember too of Gene Roddenberry's original pitch for uh, Star Trek as a wagon train in space exactly <laughs> which it does isn't exactly um, you know the uh, uh, fall of the Mohicans uh, you know uh, in space you, you want something that has that kind of look at actual civilizations changing. And I think that's an important point, too, for space opera, that it really does uh, speak a lot to the rise and fall of civilizations. I think that's very, very insightful. I would say that it approaches space opera in in, in certain episodes or or certain arcs, like when Deep Space Nine goes into their series-long war between multiple civilizations. Or that wonderful, you know, whenever they would get into the archaeology with Jean-Luc Picard on TNG, and we'd go from this planet to that planet in search of an ancient Roman artifact. But that episode by episode, it is drilling down in the culture of one planet. It's not space opera. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the other space operas out there. There's a, a brand new work by uh, Al Reynolds, um, House of Suns. And this is a kind of a departure for, for, for Al. It's a departure and a, a summing up. It's a really interesting novel that... Um, he, he, again, when you talk about uh, the sense of scale, we think of things transpiring in years, you know, and that's the time it takes our little planet to go around the sun once. In, in uh, Reynolds' new book, things are measured in circuits. That's the, that's the time it takes the galaxy to move around <laughs> in the universe. This is a pretty big uh, time scale uh, leap. And he also, as well, pursues a lot of the, the uh, 
one of the themes I think of Ren that Reynolds has done and a lot of uh, the more recent uh, science fiction and space opera writers have done, it, and that's very important, I think, uh, key, is the idea of the chase. And uh, what's interesting is uh, the way that the chase can be spun into different ways, into different uh, uh, problems and, and different tactics. I'm not sure what my reaction to that is. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> well, you know, well, I'm still flashing back to TNG episodes where they are chasing across the place. Um, you know, I, 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 while you were talking about that, I flashed on Greg Bear's new one, City at the End of Time, which is also apparently Greg returning to, to deep future, really fantastical civilizations that span millennia. Uh, and, and oddly enough, that ties in with the K. Kenyon because we actually changed the title of our third K. Kenyon book to City Without End because the, her original title was very, very close to City at the End of Time. And so there's something in the water right now. Yeah, and, and, and of course, um, a city, uh, the, the name of the uh, Bear Book again is? The Bear Book is City at the End of Time. just came out. And, and this is, of course, reminiscent of the title of the most famous and um, arguably the best episode of Star Trek ever, <laughs> isn't <laughs> it? It comes full circle. <laughs> yeah, because we, we had one coming out called City at, Time with City at Time's End, which we changed to City Without End just to avoid comparison with the bear. And I, Chris Robertson is actually reading the Greg Bear right now and telling me that there's all sorts of parallels between it and his forthcoming book, End of the Century, which isn't space opera at all, and it's about an 18-year-old girl who goes to London, but has a lot of the same elements as the Greg Bear. So there really is something that they're all, they're all getting at the same time out in the zeitgeist right now. Uh, and, and I'd like to talk to you too about some of the you know the more classic stuff and and, and uh, you guys you have a, a, a superb example of that in uh, your Mike Resnick books. Thank you. Yes, Mike is writing a Starship series for us. It's his first ever military SF. You know, a, a great not everything, but a great many things that Mike writes takes place in his Birthright universe, which maps out the history of man from now until the end of time, and this book slots into a particular part of the birthright timeline. But it's the first time Mike's ever done military SF. And it's, uh, it, it's interesting for one of my, I think that um, I tried desperately to get Mike to watch Firefly and Serenity. It took me about a year to get him to watch it. He made it through one episode, now it was nonsense, and he hated it. But I suspect that anyone who likes Firefly and Serenity would be a big fan of this series. And in fact, uh, this series shares a lot tonally with Mike's Santiago books. And I'm completely convinced that Josh Whedon has read all the Santiago books before he went off and created Firefly. Well, and I, we also must mention another book, a series of books that you picked up. And these were from the UK. And I can't tell you how great this guy is. And that's the John Meany books, the, Ooh, the New Lapirian books. And it was such a, uh, um, a, a favor you did the U.S. audience to bring those out in hardcover with the original Jim Burns covers. I mean, it was really phenomenal. And he has, a, I think, one, one of the things about uh, space opera is that it can be pretty dense. So you, in a sense... The best space opera, you can only barely grok what's going on as you read it. It's kind of you have this kind of a feeling, almost of a wavefront of almost understanding what's happening in it. 
And I think that's really true with, with Meany stuff because it's very dense and, and um, told on such a, a, an intimate personal level, yet the events are, are really the grand stuff of space opera. Well, that series, you know, I read that when it came out in Britain, and it just absolutely blew me away. And I, I spent probably a year and a half accosting editors at conventions saying, why isn't Meany in the U.S.? Why isn't Meany in the U.S.? And then when I got the job at FIRE, John was one of the first people I called. I, mean, I called him within a week of, of landing the job and saying, I've, I've been advocating to get you over here for, for ages. I didn't realize I'd be the one to do it, but let's do it. And, you know, it, it, he's, still, he's, he's still not as well-known an American name as he needs to be. I mean, I think there are a lot of people discovering John still. Uh, you know, in Britain, Charlie Strauss said that the Millipedian sequence was, quote, the crowning jewel of the new British space opera. And I think the Times called him the first important new writer of the 21st century. And I, I think we still, we're still introducing him to people over here. But I, his work is just absolutely breathtaking and amazing. And the scope of it, the scale of it, I mean, the world building, you know, I, 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 it reminded me in a great many ways of, of, of Frank Harper's Dune. Yeah, I would agree, because I remember reading Dune, and, and that's why I brought up that kind of uh, barely, barely comprehensible thing, because Dune was so dense and so richly imagined, um, and, and your access into this world seems so kind of, in a sense, narrow, um, that you, you, but you realize that as you're, even though you have this small perspective, you realize there's this entire universe that you're in, and it's been well designed by somebody who knows what's going on. Um, what are, one of the other aspects of um, space opera that, that's really required is some attention to the hard science. And I think that's one of the things, when you talked about Kay Kenyon not wanting to have her um, uh, series take place in a, in, a, in a universe where there is faster than light travel, um, that was, I think, that's been one of the, the trends, I think, in space opera of late is to, to set uh, these books in a relativistic universe. I know Al Reynolds did that with Revelation Space, and that's one of the things I liked about Icarus at the Edge of Time. He's, you know, it's a generation starship. They're not going faster than light. And I think that's an, in, that this attention to that kind of detail, um, the authors are, are using that to challenge themselves to solve that problem um, a, as an author, to because it makes it harder to tell a story, doesn't it? But do you think that's a quality of space opera or a quality of new space opera? I think that's a quality of the newer space opera. I agree. I agree. I think that that uh, you know someone like John Meany is actually taking cutting edge physics and extrapolating it forward, so that he he comes up with his own physics that that you know I, it's just within my power to grasp what he's talking about. But it feels like what physics might be several hundred years from now. You, you've got Kay, you know, adhering very 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 closely to the, what we now believe is possible about FTL. Classic SF, I mean, Mike Resnick's Starship series, not hard at all. Uh, you know, that's, that's a character-based piece. I think it harkens back to the, to the best moments of Star Trek, where you have a clever man at the helm, uh, you know, outwitting the other ships through his feats of diplomacy and, 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 and verbal sparring without having to fire too many shots. Um, we also published Joel Shepard's Cassandra Kreshnov books, which are somewhere between space opera and military SF. And that's actually something I wanted to bring up. What do you think is the dividing line between space opera and military SF? It's, is one a subset of the other, or do they exist uneasily side by side? 
I think they exist side by side. Um, <laughs> I wonder if it's a political difference, if space opera deals with empire and, and military SF deals with federations and republics. Uh, yeah, there, I would say that, that the military SF, I mean, that's an interesting aspect. I, my take might be that military SF has uh, more of an appeal to, you know, the, the, the right side of the political spectrum, whereas space opera has more of an appeal to the left side of the political you know, that, spectrum. That may be an interesting distinction. And, and, you know, a lot of the space opera, I mean, the John Meany, the Dune, we, we still have lords and ladies. We have kings and emperors. Right, yeah, there is that kind of uh, feeling of empire and the, the Victorian life. And, and also, to a certain extent, I think, too, there's a lot of, uh, I think the societies that you see find in space opera tend to be more cooperative and, and socialistic in, in their, in their uh, creation. I, I'm thinking now of the uh, um, Hamilton books where there's kind of a socialist revolution afoot in, in the Confederation things. Uh, series. I haven't I haven't read enough David Drake and David Weber to know how much uh, world building happens outside the context of the ships. You know whether we have that that those grand empires. Well, the other thing too that I I think we're seeing is a convergence between space opera and fantasy. Um, the latest uh, uh, David Weber book. Um, uses a space opera tropes to create a world that, that is essentially a, a fantasy world with the, with the, some science fiction backdrop to it. So in other words, the humanity is chased off the planet and forced to, to buckle down on a planet they called Safehold, but they are not allowed to develop technology. So in, they essentially force all of humanity to go through a mind wipe, and we all wake up thinking that we're, we've been born in this kind of Tolkien-esque, uh, um, you know, feudal land where it's where there's only swords and there's no sorcery <laughs> except for the backdrop of the the science fiction and, and in uh, as well in the latest uh, Peter F Hamilton book you you have uh, series you you have um, essentially a whole self-contained fantasy novel within the science fiction novel and I haven't read it but isn't Ian Banks's matter also in that vein um, I'm not sure about matter I know it's a, a yet another novel of the culture but uh, as, a, as par partial fantasy, I'm not sure. But I, again, I think this is something that we're seeing because both the, the fantasy genre and, I think, to a certain extent, space opera have that kind of big sweep and, as you mentioned, lords and ladies. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering whether or not I would classify Joel Shepard as space opera because it's, it's a war between galactic civilizations, one Earth-based and one space-based, but, it, it, but it's much more... Uh, contemporary military powers squaring off. Now, uh, I'm wondering, what kind of uh, space operas do you have coming out in the, in the future? What are, you, <laughs> what are you looking for from Pyre? What does Pyre have coming out that will uh, make us happy? Well, in terms of space opera, what I have coming out is more Kate Kenyon, more Mike Resnick. Uh, I am actually, oddly, uh, about to debut a whole bunch of fantasy. And I, we, we talked about that last time. We did. <laughs> so, in terms of more space opera, I have more of what we've already got. I'm actually finishing off all of those series, and I'm going to be on the hunt for more space opera soon. 
Well, that's admirable to have series that finish, as we all know. There's nothing more frustrating than a series that goes on forever, unless it's, uh, you know, there are, there are some, uh, you know, uh, exceptions. You know, the Honor Harrington books, you want those to go on. You wanted, uh, as, just as we wanted uh, the uh, Patrick O'Brien books to go on forever as well. And I think there's a, a, a tie-in there, too, to more of the military science fiction than the space opera, but still that feel of empire. We well, like that. that. Takes us back to Star Trek. Yes. Who doesn't? Yeah, it does. I've been talking with Lou Anders. We were talking about space opera. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.